Here we go. Okay. Thank you very much. We are holding actually by Perik Tes Zayin, chapter 16 in Shoftim. Um, and we're in the middle of the story of Shimshon, which is what we began two weeks ago. I'm sorry about last week. I had to cancel. Um, but two weeks ago, we were in the middle of the story of Shimshon, who is one of the last and one of the greats of the Shoftim, of the judges of the Jewish people. In that very difficult time, as we've been seeing going through the book of Shoftim and um, going through our numbers, we had Shimshon down as the 14th Shofet. And uh, one of you pointed out that there's different countings of the Shoftim, but the way we're working through them, starting from Yehoshua, so Shimshon is the 14th of the Shoftim. And there are four chapters that are devoted to the story of Shimshon. Um, third chapter, Yudgimel, Yudalid, um, Tesvav, and Tesayin are all devoted to Shimshon, uh, those four chapters. And we did the first three, um, very, very short. Uh, Shimshon was born to his parents, uh, Manoach, and Manoach's wife, and uh, that was a whole nevuah when a Malach came to her and told her she wouldn't have a son, and she told him this son is going to save the Jewish people from the Plishtim, from the Philistines, um, and he gave a special mitzvah that he should be a Nazir, which is very unusual, we discussed it then, um, we have in the Torah the Parsha of the Nazir, the person who abstains, who makes the neder, makes the oath to abstain from wine, and from to becoming defiled by coming in contact with the dead. And Shimshon was a Nazir from before birth, the only person like that, or one of the only people like that that we know of, that the Malach said he should be a Nazir from, from childhood, and he was. And we're going to see shortly how that really played into very much his life and his death, ultimately. Um, and Shimshon is born, and as we know, Shimshon is known as the famous biblical figure of superhuman strength. And that's because he had superhuman strength, godly strength. And Shimshon, like some of the Shoftim, is somewhat of an, of an enigma. On the one hand, he's definitely definitely a holy person and had Ruach HaKodesh and uh, was a great judge of the Jewish people for many years, as we, 20 years as we discussed. Um, at the same time, Shimshon had this very strange um, attraction to plishti women. Um, and as we're going to see, that that leads to his downfall time and time again. And it's it's evident that it's an attraction that he really almost had no control over. Um, and Hashem keeps on pushing him back to the, uh, the Plishti camp. And we discussed also in the previous uh, class that Shimshon led the Jewish people in a different way than the other judges. We had a number of great judges that led the Jewish people, but they were like official leaders of the Jews, and they fought the enemies of the Jews as the official leader of, the, of Klal Yisrael. But Shimshon was different. Shimshon never assumed that position to uh, lead the Jewish people into battle against the Plishtim. It was more of a personal matter that Shimshon kept on getting into trouble, so to speak, with the Plishtim. And because of his amazing strength, he was able to win battle after battle on his own, like single-handedly, in this, again, totally miraculous and superhuman way. And that was the story of, that's the story of Shimshon. So as we discussed in Perik Yudalit, that he saw a Plishti woman and he wanted to marry her and he converted her, had her convert. Um, but then she tricked him and uh, he, had, he asked the, during the, the celebration right after his wedding, he asked the riddle that he asked, which I'm not going to go over the details, and her Plishti friends had her um, extract the answer from, um, from Shimshon and this gets um, Shimshon very angry at the Plishti and um, one battle 
And then later, this wife of his that was given, um, the wife of uh, uh, Shimshon was taken and given to a different Plishti man. And that gets uh, Shimshon upset at the Plishtim again. And again, he battles many Plishtim. I see someone wrote in the chat, when was this? This is towards the end of the period of the Shaftim. So we're talking about, uh, a, the, the period of Shaftim is about a 400-year period. I don't have the exact years in front of me, but we're talking about uh, well into 300 years into the period. It was not that long before the Malachim, which starts in the next Sefer, and we're very close to the end of the Book of Shaftim now. And then we're going to start with Shmuel and Shoal. So we're talking about, I'm going to say, in the approximately a good 300 years or more after the Jewish people already came into Eretz Yisrael. Um, so again, he gets into a, to battling the Plishtim. Um, and that really brings us to where we're holding, which is the beginning of Perik Tesayin. And Perik Tesayin is a, it's, it's actually a, it's a very sad story, and that's the end of Shimshon's life, which is again connected with a Plishti woman. And that's the story, a very, it's a pretty famous story, I'm going to say, of Shimshon and Delilah. And Delilah is another Plishti woman, and again, uh, Shimshon sees her, and he's, uh, he wants to marry her. He falls for her. And she immediately, immediately starts tricking him. And that's the, the amazing part of these stories, how we see how really Hashem is behind this and, and making this happen again and again. Where the, When we read it, it doesn't make sense how he keeps on falling for the same thing. Because he has one plishti woman after the other that's really um, tricking him in ways that are very evident, as we're going to see very shortly. So the Shimshon um, wants to marry this woman, Delila, and the Plishti rulers um, get a hold of her, and they say, we need you, we need you to help us conquer this man. Because this man is our enemy, He's, he, there's no way we can uh, do anything with him. Uh, time and time again, single-handedly, he's able to battle us, and he's able to, to be victorious every single time. And we need you to find out the secret of his strength. And that's what they tell. And they promise her exorbitant amounts of money, if she's able to um, get the secret of Shimshon's strength out of him. It says they promised her, they say that, it doesn't say how many men they, that approached her, of the leaders of Plishtim, but they say each one of us will give you, it says, 1,100 silver coins, which seems to be an exorbitant amount of money, especially when coming from many, many people, each one promising that amount of money. That's what they tell Delilah. And Delilah immediately sets out on her task. So she is, you know, totally there just to try to seduce um, Shimshin and get the information from him. And as the Navi is the the pastor goes on and says that she asks him, she begs him, she says, "If you truly love me, you have to tell me your secret. What's your secret of your strength?" And apparently Shimshin wasn't so uh, he was uh, suspicious, and he tells her just tales, just tall tales. And first he tells her that uh, my secret is that if I will be tied with seven. Um, wet strands or, or fresh strands of, of uh, from bark of a tree, so then I won't have any strength. And she does that. <laughs> she ties him up with that. And then she says, the plishtim are here, the plishtim are here, to see if he's able to free himself. And immediately, you know, breaks the strands in a second, and he goes out, and the, the plishtim run for their lives. So you think, so that, you know, he, so he realizes that she's a dishonest woman, and nevertheless she continues and she asks him again, and she asks him again. And again, he tells her another mice. He says, if you tie me with a, another certain type of, uh, of, of strings, that no new strings, that no work was ever done with them, that will work. 
And she does that, and again, she says the police are here, and again, he's able to break the cords immediately. And then a third time she asks him, and again, and, he, and now he says, if you tie the, there's my, my here. Now, one of the things, and I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, that Shimshon was a Nazir. Now, the halachas of Nazir is that a Nazir is not allowed to drink wine, a Nazir is not allowed to become impure, and a Nazir is not allowed to cut their hair. So Pinchas, uh, not Pinchas, Shimshon, from birth, had never cut his hair. So you can imagine, he had very, very long hair. So Shimshon says that if you uh, if you weave, I, the, my hair is in seven uh, branches or bushes or braids, if you weave all those braids together, so then then I'll, uh, then I won't have any strength. And she does that. So he goes to sleep, where she puts him to sleep, and, and, uh, and in his sleep she takes uh, the weaving machine and she weaves all his hair together. And in fact, she ties them all to the actual weaving machine, which is a very powerful machine. And then she says, you know, the Shimshin, the Plishtimer here, the Plishtimer here, immediately stands up and he's able to totally he's able to remove the weaving machine from the earth. And again, with, with tremendous strength, again, it, it was clear that his strength was totally with him. And, and again, one would think so by now he would send her out or he'd finish with her. No, no. And we see that Hashem was behind the story. And she continues badgering him for what's the real reason. And finally, he breaks, and he says what the real reason. And he says, my strength lies in the fact that I am a Nazir. I'm a Nazir from birth. And Hashem said that a Nazir is not allowed to cut his hair. And therefore, my hair, that's my strength. And if my hair were to be cut, so then I would really not have any strength anymore. And the Pasuk says that at this point, she recognized that he was saying the truth. She knew that at this point, she knew that the first three answers were incorrect. This would be the correct answer. How did she know? Rashi asks from the Gemara, after all, he had told her a number of stories. Why is it that at this point she's convinced that this is the truth? And the Gemara says, first of all, that there's a concept. In Hebrew we say, Nikarim Divrei Emes. Nikarim Divrei Emes means when a person is saying the truth, you know they're saying the truth. Somehow she knew when he said, till then when he said it, she, yeah, she knew it, but she didn't, she didn't fully know. She didn't believe it 100%. At this point, Nikarim Divriyemes, she knew that he was saying the truth. And then the Gemara says a different reason, because in this time, he mentioned Hashem in his answer. Because in this time, he said that it's Hashem said that this uh, that I should be a Nazir, and this here carries the strength of the Nazirus. And therefore, once he mentioned the shame Hashem, she knew that he's a Tzaddik, and that a Tzaddik would never mention the name of Hashem in vain, and therefore she knew it was the truth. And again, and here's where, and here that, that, that night, she had someone come in and cut off all of his hair. And, the, and then she called on the Plishtimer, the Plishtimer here, and this time he gets up, and again, he, he feels, he thinks he's going to have the same strength, but at this point, Titake had no strength at all. And the Plishtimer came into the room, and they were able to conquer him, they were able to take him into captivity without any battle at all. And for the Plishtimer, this was their ultimate uh, victory. This was the person for 20 years was there the total thorn in their sides, and they were not able to do anything with him or to him in any form, and now they had him. And they took out their revenge, and the first thing they did, it says, is that they took out his eyes. Nikruis Enov, they took out his eyes, they, uh, they took out his eyes, made him blind. And Chazal say that everything that Hashem does, is uh, even when it comes to a tzaddik, or sometimes perhaps especially to a tzaddik, that every, anything that's uh, imperfect is go- has to be um, atoned for, and, and Shimshon's imperfection was his relationship with the, the Plishti women. 
and that comes from from the sight, from looking, from from looking and go following one's um, following one's eyes and looking in places where one shouldn't. And that's why Mida Kenegan Mida, his punishment was that his downfall was that they took out his eyes. At that point, the Plishti made a huge celebration, and they made a celebration to um, celebrate their victory over Shimshon. And they did it in their house of idolatry. The um, idol of the Plishtim was called Base Dogoin, or Dogoin actually was the idol. Base Dogoin was the house of idolatry. And they were praising and singing and bringing sacrifices to their idol, um, clay, you know, giving the uh, victory to their idol. Their idol is the one that was able to bring down Shimshon. And at this point, Shimshon is incensed because more than his own personal pain and his degradation, he was in a sense at the Chilul Hashem. Because he knew that the reason why his downfall was because he wasn't perfect in the ways of Hashem. And in fact, he had the Allah of Nazir, and now that the Allah of Nazir was taken from him, he lost his ear. That's how they were able to be victorious. And now they're going and giving the, uh, he said it's the Chilul Hashem, that they're giving the praise and the glory to the, to the idols. And Pinchas started davening to Hashem. And again, the very one of the very famous stories of Tanakh, and as the Pasuk says, that at this point, Pinchas is here, uh, I keep on saying Pinchas, I'm sorry, that Shimshon's here had started to regrow. Because remember, his whole strength was all lied in the spiritual powers and energies that was flowing through his hair. And now, they had shaved his hair. She or she, his wife, Dalila, had shaved his hair. But at this point, his hair was beginning to grow. And as his hair was beginning to grow, his strength was beginning to come back to him. His superhuman strength. And therefore, as they brought him, so they were having this great celebration, uh, praising their idol, their gods. And at that point, they say, okay, let's uh, bring out the Jewish hero and let's make fun of him. Let's play with him. Let's have him jump for us and act for us in order that we should be able to, uh, you know, the sweet victory over our enemy. So uh, someone was sent to bring out Plish, uh, um, Shimshon from his jail where he was being held. And when he was brought in front of all the plishtim, he asked the boy who had brought him out, he says, let me lean on the beams of the home. Because this uh, this huge, uh, this palatial uh, place, this base of Edezara, the, uh, the church or uh, idolatrous house, was a big, beautiful, it was a big home. And there was many, many thousands of plishtim in the home that were at that time celebrate the victory over the Jewish enemy. And, and Shimshon is placed next to the beam. And he's able to stretch out his arms, and he's able to, t- to reach two of the beams of the home. And he davens a tefillah to Hashem, and he says, achas enai. I want to take Hashem, I'm, I'm, I'm requesting that Hashem should allow me to avenge the revenge of one of my eyes. They, the Plishtim took out my, both of my eyes. So I, I'm asking for the schus of one of those eyes to be able to avenge the COVID of Hashem. And he says, famously, he said it what became a quote later, Tomus Nafshi Implishtim. He says, May I die together with all of the enemies of Hashem who are here in this room. And with that, he was uh, he was able to stretch out his arms and and uproot or knock over the two primary beams that was holding up this entire huge uh, palace, which came crashing down, killing everyone inside. In fact, the Pasuk says, that on that day, he was he he killed more plishtim, more of the enemy than throughout his entire life. Because everyone was gathered there at the same time to celebrate the, the um, destruction of the Jewish people. And Shimshon died at that time as well. Shimshon died. 
And in the confusion, in the ensuing confusion, it says his family members were able to come in into the uh, that uh, the, the ruins and they're able to remove the body of Shimshon and bring him for burial in their family's burial place, which was in the Shevet of Don, where Shimshon came. And that is the end of the Shevet, this, this Shevet, the who was a tremendous help for Klal Yisrael for those years. And the Pasuk finishes that Shimshon judged, ruled over the Jew, judged the Jewish people for 40 years. Now the Amasiz, the Gemara says, that really he was only 20 years, because we learned earlier it was 20 years that he was a Shevet. So why does it say that he was 40 years? So the Gemara says that his, his, um, his impression on Klal Yisrael was so powerful that even for 20 years after his death, they still lived, so to speak, under his leadership. And not only them, his fear, the fear that he inspired in the Plishtim and the nations around was still like hovering over everyone for an additional 20 years after he passed away. And that's why it says that he judged 40 years, even though another Pasuk says 20 years, because really in his lifetime he was only a judge for 20 years, because his, his, his uh, leadership and his impression or effect on Klal Yisrael and the nations surrounding them lasted for 20 full years after his passing. In fact, the Rebbe many times would mention that when talking about the effect that a tzaddik has even after his passing. Right? We know that many years after the previous Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe will always still refer him to him as the Rebbe, and, and there were, he inspires us and teaches us and guides us, and we die and we connect to him and so on. And he would use this uh, statement that Chazal say about Shimshon, that even after his passing, his leadership, his influence, and his uh, connection to Klal Yisrael remained so much so that the Navi says that for 40 years he was the judge, though 20 years was after his passing. I'll, uh, I'll take one moment over here to discuss the concept. Yeah, someone wrote here, what exactly was the role of the leader? Just uh, of a shofit, just another way to say leader? Yeah, primarily. I mean, as, as we went through the shofit, we saw some of them led in different ways. Some of them were just spiritual leaders. Some of them were also military leaders, depending on the needs of the time. Again, the, this whole era that we're working with, era of the Shaftim, is a very not defined time, very not defined, and and therefore the Shaftim are different, and, and they they serve in different ways. But they were a leader, but again, leader uh, first of all, first and foremost in Torah, typically Torah teaching and being a judge to for disputes, halachic disputes, and so on, like the Sanhedrin, and many times also a military leader, as we've seen. I'll take one moment before we move on to discuss the concept of the here, of the Nazir, because that's a very central part of the story of Shimshon. Um, here we have, he has this mitzvah to be a Nazir, um, and that, as we said, has the three primary parts of not def- becoming defiled to a, uh, to a body, to a dead body, uh, not becoming tumming, that is, and then not uh, to drink wine, but also not to cut the ones here. Um... And the question is, what's, this, what's the story with the hearers of the Nazar? Why is it that that's where the Kedusha is? And as we see in the story of Shimshon, that that's what, where all the strength was in his hair. And, and everything you know, can, well, everything was ultimately uh, around the hair. And once he lost his hair, that's when he lost everything. What is it about the Kedusha of the hearers of the Nazar? And I, I don't want to spend more than two minutes on it, but the subject of hair is a very broad subject in Torah and especially in Kabbalah. Because when it comes to here, we have all extremes. We have here that's holy, like the here of the Nazir, for example. Or similarly, we have the beard of a man, which we know especially Kabbalistically, 
Um, a man is not supposed to, um, Kabbalistically, in the Hasidic custom, is that a man doesn't in any way trim his beard. Halachically, a man is not allowed to take a full shave. Um, but uh, Kabbalistically, and according to Hasidus, it's not just a full shave. A, a Hasid will not even uh, in any way touch or trim their beard at all. So there's the Kedusha aspect to hearers. On the other hand, we have hearers that are negative. Like we have the hearers of a Mitzorah. The Mitzorah has to be, the has to be cut off. Or, or the hearer of the Levi. When the when the Levim were um, brought into the Avodah in the Beis Hamikdash, they had to be the entire here had to be removed. And then you have the here of a married woman, which has to be covered. So it doesn't have to be removed, but on the other hand, but it's not holy and it's covered. So we see that when it comes to here, there's all these different halachas um, about here, whether it's holy or it's negative or it's impure, it has to be covered, it can be revealed. Like what's the story with here? So I'm saying there's there's a lot. There's really there's farm written on the concept of here and and what it, what the idea is. I'm just gonna say one point. One point that it says many times in Hasidus is that here represents a very very limited level of of energy, right? Just like physically in a body, here grows, but the energy, the life force that's within the here is so minute that when one cuts here, it doesn't hurt. When one cuts a finger or any part of the body, it hurts. And when you cut your hair, it doesn't hurt because the energy of the soul that flows into the hair is so, so minute. And therefore, here always represents in Hasidus and Kabbalah when a hamshacha, when a, a flow of divinity is coming from a tremendously high place that it could only come down in the form of here. So therefore, that's what we have here of Kedusha because it's coming from the highest areas in Hashem and therefore comes down in this very, very contracted way, like in here, like tiny little um, conduits of a very, very powerfully high energy. That's why it says, for example, going back to the hair of the beard, that the hair of the beard is connected with what's called the Yud Gimel Tikuni Dikna, or the Yud Gimel Midas Harachamin. The 13 measures of God's benevolence are called the 13 hairs of God's divine beard that somehow flow through the man's beard down here. But the Rebbe told many people when they were asking for bracha for parnasa that the husband should grow a beard. So that's a that's a uh, it's a conduit for hamshacha from Hashem's rachamim. So the kabbalistic reason why a man doesn't in any way trim his beard is because those hairs within them there's the thirteen hairs that are connected to the thirteen uh, midos of Hashem's rachamim. In fact, I heard that I read that one of the disciples of the Ariza was such a great tzaddik and such a great mikubal that he knew which of the hairs of his beard are the 13 hairs that are connected to the 13 Midas Arachimim. So he did trim the other hairs of the beard. Go figure. <laughs> so that's what here is holy. That's the hair of the Nazir. So the hair of the Nazir is connected to that very high level of divinity. However, the negative here is when it's connected to a much lower level. So then when it comes out in a very contracted way, it goes into Klippa totally. Because it's in a much lower level of here. And there's an interesting Nevuah when Mashiach comes that says that Hashem will shave the hairs of the uh, Asir of of Sanchein of Melech Ashur. Again, I'm, I'm going out of the. Uh, we're learning Navi over here, but it, here is really a, a fascinating shear for all for itself of where and how and whatever. whatever. Again, I'll, I'll leave that for now. But here is one of the places where we see it that where we see it clear in the Navi that his whole power was somehow connected to his here to the degree that his here was cut and he didn't have it anymore. So that the kedusha of the Nazirus. And therefore, his his uh, miraculous gift of power was somehow totally connected to the physical hairs on his head. So much so that when it wasn't there, he didn't have it. When it started growing back, he had it again. And this is just an, an example of how something so physical and seemingly mundane as here 
can be such a conduit of divine power and bracha, as it was in the story of Shimshon. Okay, with that we'll conclude the story of Shimshon, and we'll move on, which brings us to Perech Yud Zayin, chapter 17 Rabbi, of Shoftim. Yes. Rabbi Sultan, sure. Um, Um, I don't believe that's the reason it's given. I don't, I don't. Is that a reason? Is that what you heard, or is that what you're assuming? I'm asking you. I'm asking no, you no, 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 no. If so, I'm, I'm not right now. I didn't go through it all. Um, now, I, uh, once a, a while back, I think it's connected more with givuras. With givuras, the woman, a woman, especially when she's married, is connected with a certain level of givura, and therefore we want to cover the which that givura is evident in the here. We want to cover it to cover over the givura, so that uh, that the givura should not be dominant. Um, and that's connected more, that's connected, the Shevet Levi. Shevet Levi in general is also connected to Gvura. And that's why the Levim, as we said, had to be totally shaven when they went, before they went to serve in the Beis HaMikdash. So a woman's level of Gvura is lesser than that of Shevet Levi. So it doesn't have to be taken off, but it has to be covered so that the Gvura shouldn't be dominant. But only after the woman is married. Again, it's a very complex and interesting subject. You know, maybe one time when we're looking for an extra shear, we'll do something on that. That's a very good question. Um, I don't remember. It says that he's connected in the in the area of Dun. Um, it's very very likely that the tour guides know, but then again, <laughs> then again, you have to know which tour guide and where they're getting their information from. But uh, I, I don't recall. Maybe someone uh, on the Shear knows if they've been in Eretz traveling. Maybe it is, but I don't know. I don't know. Okay, this brings us to. Right, right. That's a very good question, and I don't know the answer. Um, but my assumption is that he said it's the here. He didn't say anything else. I mean, at the at the end when he revealed what the secret was, he specifically says here. So even though clearly he was a nazir and clearly he was not allowed to drink wine. Um, but somehow he felt that the spiritual power, or, or he knew that his his physical power is connected with the spiritual um, power that's dafka within the here. So why is it one mitzvah over the other? I don't know, but that's what's evident from the story. Okay, thank you. Okay, Perik Yud Zayin. Now, so here's now we're we're nearing the end of the book of Shaftim, and we have two more stories. Both of them are very sad stories. So um, if we're looking only for, you know, happy stories, <laughs> I'm sorry. The, the next book is much happier. The book of Malachim it starts in a much better place. But and again, I, I said this many times throughout our Shoftim classes, that Shoftim is not a happy time. Shoftim is a time of anarchy, and there wasn't any, you know, there was this leader and that leader and the other leader. There was never one leader for everyone. There was never one, and it was very fragmented, and there wasn't a king. And many times throughout the book of Shaftim, we'll find the statement, Ein melech bi Yisrael. There is no unified situation, and that's why they keep on bouncing back and forth between idolatry and so on and so forth. And you have these Shaftim, who are great people, who stand up and help for 20, 30, 40 years, but and then we're back to square one. So Shaftim in general was a very sad period in the time of Kal Yisrael. Um, these last two stories, which are the last um, five chapters, again, we're holding now chapter 17, 
So 17 and 18 is one chapter, is one story, which we'll get to. And then 19, 20, 21 is another story. Basically, the rest of it, again, we'll do one tonight, Bezra Hashem, and one next week, Bezra Hashem. I hope to be Messiah. I hope to finish the book of Shaitan next week. Um, but these last two stories, again, one being two chapters long and one being three chapters, um, do not have a shofet in them. They're not about a certain shofet. And in fact, according to Chazal, did not happen at the end of the story of Shoftim. They happened throughout the years. There's differences of opinion exactly which years. But even though they are the end of the book, chapter 17 and 18, 19, 20, 21, they're the last five chapters in the book of Shoftim, the Gemara tells us, and Chazal tell us, that these are stories that happened maybe 100, 200 years earlier um, than what we have learned till now. But they're not associated with a particular shayfet, um, and therefore that, that's why they're, they're at the end. They're not part of, there's no shayfet in the stories, but they are, as we're going to see, um, very sad stories and very indicative of the times, of the times of the shayfetim. So just to give you the subject matter, the next two chapters, Yudzayin and Yudches, the subject is the idol of Micha. That's the subject of the next two chapters, and it's really a story of idolatry, um, it's treachery and idolatry, and primarily one shavit, as we're going to see, um, and that affects the shavit of Dun, which was very terribly affected by the idolatry, and that's the the, ne- the, the subject matter of the next two chapters. But again, I, I hope to at least partially or more than partially cover it tonight. Um, and the final three chapters are the story of Pilegesh Begiva. That's what it's known as, the, the concubine in Giva. And that um, affects primarily the tribe of Binyamin, as we're going to see. And again, I, I repeat, these are not um, happy stories and not um, glorious stories for the Jewish people. And also, I'm going to say that again, not chronologically in order here. And they're not connected with individual Shoftim, but they're stories that happen in this Tekufa, in this period of times of the Shoftim, and again, are indicative of the sad times and the lack of leadership and the lack of um, any type of uniform leadership of Klal Yisrael at that time. Okay, having said that, let's jump into it. Perik Yud Zayin. Perik Yud Zayin, chapter 17, begins that there was a man from Ephraim, from the, from the Har Ephraim, from the mountain of Ephraim, um, presumably from the tribe of Ephraim. His name was Michohu. It says, the first time the Pasuk mentioned it says Michohu, but later he's called Micha. Now, this Micha doesn't tell us much about his background, but the Gemara tells us about his background. And it tells us a story that you may have heard, uh, very, also a, 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 a story, you know, not an easy story to hear and to relate to. And the story goes all the way back to when the Jewish people were in Eretz Yisrael, were, were in Mitzrayim, that is. And they were under the very evil Pare. And we know from Rashi and Chumash and Shemos that Paro was a mass murderer. And one of the things that he did was that he ordered the Jewish people to build, that we know from the Chumash, they built the cities of Pisam and Ramses. And when they did not um, do their, uh, fill their, um, uh, the, the amount that they had to fulfill of, quota. their quota, thank you. When they had to, uh, they didn't fill their quota of bricks, so he would have Jewish little kids put into the wall, put cement, and he'd kill the kids. Um, you know, Prince Ryan was it was a holocaust. And it says that Moshe Rabbeinu turns to Hashem and says, Hashem, how could you? Moshe Rabbeinu did that. We know that he did that. Moshe Rabbeinu had that 
that leadership, and he turned to Hashem and said, "How could these, these are kindleach? I mean, how, how how can you allow kids to be killed?" And Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, he says, "A human being will never understand my plans, and you don't know why I do what I do, and you don't have the picture that I have. But if you want to see, take out one of the kids." And Moshe Rabbeinu took out one of the kids, saved the kid's life, and that was Micha. This Micha that shows up here in Navi, uh, we don't know how much later. Was it 100 years later or 150 years later? But this was Micha. Now this Micha was a troublemaker from the get-go. And that's really what Hashem was telling him, that you don't know when a person dies and a child, we're what? We don't know. We just don't We just don't know Hashem's cheshman. Point is, this Micha followed Moshe Rabbeinu around. And when Moshe Rabbeinu, we know when the Jewish people were ready to leave Mitzrayim, so everyone was involved with getting the riches of Mitzrayim. What was Moshe Rabbeinu involved with? Moshe Rabbeinu was involved with getting the casket of Yosef HaTzadik and the other Shvatim. We know that they had a command that they were supposed to take Yosef HaTzadik out of Mitzrayim back to Israel, together with the remains of the other Shvatim. So when the Jewish people were busy getting ready to leave Mitzrayim, Moshe was searching for the casket of Yosef. And it says that the Gemara has two opinions. According to one opinion, Yosef's casket was sunk into the Nilus, into the Nile. So Moshe went to the Nile, and he wrote on a piece of parchment, um, Alei Shor, ox, rise up. We know that Yosef was compared to an ox in the Chumash. And Yosef's casket floated to the top, and, and Moshe took it. But that parchment that had the divine power, Moshe never retrieved. And Micha, who was in the background, took it. So Micha, who is a not a spiritual person or not a holy person, a wicked person, has now in his uh, in his uh, possession a parchment with divine powers that say an ox should come forth. Says the Medrash that um, uh, f- f- fifty days, no, not fifty days, about ninety days after they left uh, Mitzrayim, and Moshe Rabbeinu is up on the mountain after receiving the Torah, and the Jewish people want to create a idol to serve. So they create a fire and Micha takes that parchment that says Ali Shor and throws it into the fire and that's how the Egel Hazov came forth. The first and, and worst idol of the Jewish people, the Egel Hazov, the golden calf, was created through this Micha, this rebellious young man. This same Micha, says the Gemara, is the one who's the... the uh, dubious hero of our story. He's the one who's going to again bring idolatry to the Jewish people. So we have someone who's uh, idolatrous all the way from the beginning, from Mitzrayim um, to the golden calf, and now we're in the times of, times of the Shaftim. Anyways, all I the... Have, I have a question. Yes. Didn't Micha die in the Dorha Mitzrayim? What was he doing alive so much later? That's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. And yet, according to this Medrash, he didn't die. I mean... It says uh, not everyone died. I mean, even, uh, I mean, obviously women didn't die, and Shevet Levi didn't die, but even from others, there were exceptions, it would seem, um, for various reasons, and Micha was one of those people. Yeah, you're saying, right? The person who, uh, Dafka, a person who was so wicked, was still there. Yeah, that's uh, all part of Hashem's ways that we don't understand. Why sometimes it seems the wicked um, have this extra measure of protection, sometimes hard to understand. Okay. All of this does not say in the Navi. All, all I just told you is from the Medrash and the Gemara. The Gemara just says, the Navi just says, there was a man named Micha. Okay. And then it goes on to say an interesting story. That this Micha, he had a mother. And the mother had money. 
And in fact, uh, let's see if you if you notice if you can make the connection. The amount of money the mother had was a thousand and a hundred silver coins. Where did we hear about a thousand and a hundred silver coins tonight? That that was the that was the payment that was offered to Delila from the Pelishtim. There's even some Mefarshim who say that this mother was Delila. <laughs> they say that. Right, right. So that so that's what most so most opinions say that doesn't make any sense, right? Because because it's, it was before in time because this wasn't in chronological order, and plus Micha is coming from Mitzrayim. But it is mentioned. But most say that this that one of the reasons the story was put right here right after the story of Shimshon is because this interesting relationship of this negative money, this one thousand one hundred silver coins. Be that as it may, this mother her, she lost her silver coins; they were stolen. And she she said, whoever stole my silver coins should be cursed. And her son, Micha, comes up and says, Ma, I took it. <laughs> Sorry, you know, I took the silver coins. And he stole it, but now he, his mother is already cursing the person. So he says, I'll give it back. And she says, fine, okay, good. He says, this, these coins being that are stolen from me, I am consecrating them for Avodazara. I want to use them to create idolatry. And, you know, according to the Midrashim, there was some back and forth between the mother and son. But at the end, that's what happens. She goes and he ha- she has um, an idol formed. An idol formed with this monies that she had that she had lost. And the one who becomes in charge of this idol is Micha, her son. And therefore, this idol is always going to be called Pesel Micha, the idol of Micha. And again, according to the Gemara, it's the old Micha who's been involved in trouble and idolatry all the way along. And Micha, um, he adds to the idol and he creates a, a house of worship. So now there's a whole house of worship of Avedizara going on over here, and Micha is in charge. And then the Pasuk tells us that there was a young man who was a levy, who was traveling, and he ended up also by Micha. And it's interesting, here's something interesting, and maybe it goes back to a question I was asked here before, Micha, who's idolatrous and wicked, the Gemara said he has he had one trait that was a big schus for him. And that brought him a lot of bracha. And that was, he was very into the mitzvah of Hachnas Asarchim. His home was always open. And we see in the story of Micha, a few times the people sort of just ended up by him. He had an open home. And here we uh, the Gemara tells us that everything, every positive thing that a person does is a schus for them. Even if the person might in general be a negative person. Azchus is something that's there and, and gives bracha to the person. And this Micha was a, uh, was a machnas ayrach. Again, he was idolatrous and he was wicked and yet he had this good midah of achnas azarchim. So it says that you have this young man from Levi who's traveling and doesn't have where to go and he's looking to make a living and he ends up by Micha. And to make a long, Micha talks with him, to make a long story short, he hires him to be his Kohen, to be the Kohen for his Avodah to be the priest for his Avodah um, we're going to learn a little later who this Levi was. A little shocking. But this um, this Levi is hired by Micha to be a Kohen for his Avodah and he takes the job. Um, he doesn't really believe in idolatry, it seems, but uh, the money was good, the pay was good. So he became the priest for Micha. And Micha was very happy because he felt that the fact that he has a Levi, someone from the tribe of Levi, which they're the Kohenim for the Beis HaMikdash, which, by the way, there's a, there's a Mishkan in Shiloh. There is a Mishkan going on throughout the times of Shoftim. Their Mishkan is standing in Shiloh. Nevertheless, he has a house of Avodah um, with some type of following, it seems. 
that's the end of chapter 17. Okay? Chapter 18 goes on. Let's see if we can do at least part of chapter chapter 18. Um, chapter 18 begins, again with the words, This is a verse that's repetitive throughout Shaftan, that it's a time of anarchy. There is no real leadership. Okay, now the, it says that there's people from the Shevet of Don, from the tribe of Don, and they are looking for another, more um, more place in, in Israel for uh, for them to, for their tribe to live. So they send out uh, spies to look out, where's there a good place where we could conquer for the people of Don to live. And these spies also end up in the house of Micha. They end up in the house of Micha, and as we said, because he has this open home policy, and they see this young man, this Kohen, and they ask him, what are you doing here? And he tells them, listen, I'm a Kohen for the Avedizara. So they ask him, oh, you're uh, you're the priest for the Avedizara. Can you tell us, prophesize for us, are we going to be successful in our quest to find a new place for the tribe of Dun? And he goes into the Avedizara, comes by and says, yes, yes, you people will be successful in your endeavors. And they go on and they find a city. The city is called Laish. And they're very happy with the city. They're very happy with it. And they feel that it's easy to conquer. And they go back to the people in the tribe of Don, to the ones who sent them, and they say, we found a place, and it's good to conquer, and we can we can d- take it. So the Pasuk says that they uh, amass a little uh, army of 600 warriors from Don, and they go, they head towards this Laish to conquer it. But these spies who had gone first take this army of 600 men, and they first go to visit Micha's house. And basically what they do is they steal the idol and... The Kohen, this young man, the Kohen, they take them all. They take the idol and the Kohen, they say, you're coming with us. And they say, isn't it better to be a Kohen for a whole tribe than for one person? Like this, you're just serving Micha. Now you'll serve the tribe of Don. So they go with him and then the Pasuk says, Micha runs after them and they basically threaten Micha that they'll kill him if he comes uh, near. And Micha goes back home. And they go to do uh, their battle against the city of Laish and they're successful in their battle. And Don becomes re-established now in the city of Laish. In fact, they rename the city of Laish to be the city of Don. And they create a big temple of Avedizara there. And that is Pesel Micha. This Pesel, this, um, this idol that was made by Micha and his mother. And now Micha is out of the story because it was stolen from Micha. Really, if you think about it, this is a double theft. It all started from the theft of Micha's mother, the money. And then the money was returned. And then she made an idol. And then he became, uh, Micha becomes this uh, house of Avedizara. And then he has the Koyin. And then now the Koyin and the idols are taken by the tribe of Don. And Don establishes a base of Avedizara that functions there for many, many years. And this becomes a very terrible stain on Klal Yisrael. That for, for a long time, it doesn't say clearly 100 years, 200 years, but for a very, very significant amount of time. While the, she, while the Mishkan of Hashem is operating in Shiloh, and there's Karbanis, at the same time, there is a base of Edezara in the Shevet, in the, um, in the area of the tribe of Don. And this is something that actually is already prophesized about in the Chumash, in a couple of places. I'll just mention quickly, when, I, when Avram Avinu, all the way back in Parshas Lech Lecha, when Avram Avinu was running after the four kings, right, we had the, the story of the four kings against the five kings, and Avram Avinu was able to uh, run against, uh, uh, battle and conquer the four kings, it says, he ran ad-don, says Rashi, until Don, but ad-don, he said he stopped, because 
he was weakened because of the power of Avodah that was going to be in this place by Klal Yisrael many years in the future. And then the Pasuk says a little further there that he made it till Chova. Chova means a, um, something negative, like a, uh, a negative um, a debt. And it says, Rashi says, that the place wasn't called Chova. It's just that this is the Chova of Klal Yisrael. This was a stain on Klal Yisrael, the Avodah that was in Dun throughout that time, period. Um, finally, when Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of the Chumash is shown the different places in Eretz Yisrael, the Pasuk says, Vayarehu Adon, Hashem showed Moshe Rabbeinu till Don. says Rashi, Hashem showed Moshe Rabbeinu the Avodizara, that was going to be in Don. Now, Don is not all negative. Shimshon also comes from Don. So there's positive and negative in Don, no question. But this was definitely a stain in that time of the Shaiftim. Um, and I'll conclude with one other very sad part of the story. And that is, who was the Kohen? Right? We have the, we have this uh, this secret, the Kohen that shows up, that he was traveling and Micha invites him into the house and Micha has him um, become his Kohen and now the people from Don uh, kidnapped him and now he's their Kohen. Who is he? So the Pasuk says that his name was Yonasan, Ben Gershon, Ben Menashe. That was the name of the coin of this Avodazar. Yonasan, son of Gershom, son of Menashe. But if you look into the, you know, when it comes to the letters of the Torah and Tanah, sometimes there's letters that are a little uh, smaller or bigger or out of. So the nun of Menashe is like hanging. It's not in the regular word. It's like an extra nun. Says the Gemara that it's not Menashe, it's Moshe. This was Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson. He was the Kohen from Shevet Levi who traveled, ended up being the Kohen for Micha and the Kohen of Don. And the reason why that Nun was put in there, says the Gemara, for the Kavod of Moshe Rabbeinu. That I shouldn't say Yonasan, the son of uh, Gershom, the son of Moshe, because the, obviously it's not the Kavod of Moshe Rabbeinu, so it says Menashe. But ultimately this was really an Enikal, a grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu who was a Levi. So much so, the Gemara says in Talmud Yerushalmi that this Kohen lived until David HaMelech. And David HaMelech had him summoned and says, you're Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson. How could he be a Kohen for Avodah Zarah? And the Gemara says an interesting interchange. He says, I heard in the name of my grandfather that a person should never want to be supported by others. You should even do Avodah Zarah instead of being supported by others. If that's, if that's where you can make a livelihood. That's what this Kohen told David HaMelech. And David HaMelech says, you totally misunderstood what your grandfather said. When he said Avodah Zara, he didn't mean idolatry. He meant an Avodah that's Zara for you. Like if a person is not good at that profession, it doesn't matter. Do any type of profession and be not to become to become like a pauper that's asking for alms. So you understood it to mean idolatry. It had nothing to do with idolatry. It had to do with just to do anything to make some money, but not idolatry. And then the Gemara says in Talmud Yerushalmi that David HaMelech saw that this person had a tremendous, tremendous weakness for money. And that's why he had become this coin. Because that's, so David made him the minister of he, over his, um, over his uh, money houses, his storehouses of money. And that's how he brought him to do a full shuva, this enukal of, of Moshe Rabbeinu. But uh, that's much later. That's in time of David HaMelech. But at this point, at least, he is that Kohen that served by Micha and now serves amongst Klal Yisrael in 
in the Shevet of Dan. And that's how this chapter finishes, chapter 18. And that's the story of Pesel Micha, again, one of the sad indications of the moral situation of the time, that while there's the Mishkan going on in Shiloh, there's also this Pesel of Micha and this uh, house of idolatry um, in the tribe of Dan. And that's the end of Perik Yudches. And again, next week, Bezer Sashem will do the last few Prakim, which deals with the another difficult story, and that's the Pelagish and Giva and the tribe of Binyamin. And with that, we'll finish the book of Shaftim from Yitzhak Hashem. Thank you, Rabbi Silverberg.